Undercurrent, undercurrent, undercurrent. I'm Wasir. And I'm Adriana. And you're listening to Undercurrent, a podcast complementing the Undercurrent art space at 70 John Street in Brooklyn. Happy, Happy New Year. Year! On this episode, our guest is artist Travis Leroy Southworth, whose show, I'm a Portrait, opens at Undercurrent on Friday, January 10th at 6 p.m. Check undercurrent70.org for updates. Before getting to Travis, though, I want to encourage everyone who hasn't yet downloaded and listened to our 2019 Winter Holiday Mixtape to please do so. Do it. It's a great sampler of the sort of musical work that also happens at Undercurrent in addition to the art, and will give a sense of uh, the sorts of events that will happen this year, too. So, Adriana, how have you been keeping yourself busy during this winter break? Along with seeing lots of shows from smaller galleries in the area, I also finally got to go see the Gulf War exhibit at MoMA PS1, which was super, super moving um, and just a great culmination of artists working around the Gulf War. And there's not much other to say than to go see it before it's down because it's a really, really important exhibit to see. Is there a specific piece that jumped out at you? I felt that it wasn't really a show that kind of... I felt like it all moved together in such a cohesive manner, you know? I I can't really pick one out that kind of stood out to me. The, the whole experience was very educational, which is something I really appreciate when going to see art, that I also get kind of this, you know educational uh experience from it great thanks and what's new with you uh thanks for asking i have spent break not going anywhere i actually was laid up and couldn't move for a month but that's a different story but i'm uh working on a project at if you listen to the winter mixtape the christmas tape you'll hear that i i did a little bit of performing on the last track and um as always happens i i perform music so infrequently that whenever whenever i do so i always afterwards i'm like how could i have done this better what can i do better that to uh to make this a more valuable thing for me in terms of deriving pleasure from it but also to make the performance aspect of it better too so the big idea i had was to uh finally get certified at the barnard makerspace up, nice. up, up, up at work and um, basically to rehouse the synthesizer I built back in 2013 in a new all-wood um, container. Nice. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, if it's, it's sort of occupied my, my entire life because it involves um, drawing schematics. Uh, I decided as a joke that the panels, all the text should be in languages that are not English. So translating them has, been, has tickled another one of my like pleasure points. Um, designing the panel is another pleasure point. The idea of finally learning how to work with wood is another pleasure point. My grandfather did a lot of work with wood, so it's this kind of, uh, uh, like idea of, of doing some kind of succession or something like that in those terms. Well, Sierra is a burgeoning conceptual artist. Yeah. This, hear it here first. Yeah. This is your theory. This is the, the, the project, uh, without going into too much detail about it 
it's it's rehousing just a sort of fun toy synthesizer into a Eurorack specification. And the thing is, I said I would never get into Eurorack because the rules are that the first step you have to take when you start doing Eurorack is absolutely not have any idea how to handle money because it is so expensive. And so, and, but, but, and this, but if you do it DIY, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. So like, for example, um, one of the modules that I'm going to be adding to the synthesizer costs like 99 bucks at the store. But the, uh, the person who designed it, she released it as, as, uh, under creative commons. So I can buy a PCB for, um, like five bucks and then source the parts myself for about like seven or eight bucks. And then maybe I'll have wood lying around that I can just feed into the laser printer at Barnard and get a nice panel out of it. So it's very exciting. And if, if uh, you want some kind of sense of what it looks like, there's a Czech company. I have no idea how you say their name, Bastel or something like that. B-A-S-T-L who their thing is making Eurorack modules with wooden faceplates. And uh, they had a DIY case even that was made out of plywood. And that's that case design I'm sort of copying. That sounds all great. Yeah, so it's so it's kind of funny that uh, the sort of productivity has come out of this. And this is, it's a confluence of a bunch of things. And, and, and languages, it's so interesting. And symbolism, you're engraving kind of oh. symbols and animals or like symbols that represent animals, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the joke is that once I got the idea to make the case out of wood, the joke became how to make this look like folk art. Yeah. And uh and so yeah, so it's going to so it's using like Baltic neo-pagan symbology. Uh yet somehow I managed not to use swastikas, which is extremely rare. Uh typically neo-pagans just love using swastikas. Applause for that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's just, yeah, just a, just a whole bunch of things. And it's, and it's very exciting because it also, um, when I lived in Lithuania, I had like a little workshop that, where I could do all kinds of electrical work and things like that, that I had slowly amassed over time, which was why it was possible to build that synthesizer in the first place. But uh, since moving to New York, I haven't, haven't really had that. Like I had a soldering iron and that's it. And I haven't done any projects that were electrical. Um, but now, now I'm starting. So yeah. Exciting new beginnings. Exactly. I look See? forward to hearing more about it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like, uh, you know, follow me on Instagram, everybody, or something. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> or Twitter. No, I'm not. I mean, it's it's not not quite as much as, as going on on Twitter. But yeah. Um, anyway, so next time you have to talk about yourself a whole bunch and, and not blush as much as I'm blushing now. So. You're not um, blushing. Well, you just can't see it. And, I mean... Yeah. So and anyway, now it'll be known that Monsieur is blushing. There you go. See, it's it's a true fact. So now on to our conversation with Travis. So he's an artist living and working here in New York, and he's exhibited widely recently in the tri-state area. But in addition to being a visual artist, and this is something that comes up a lot in our conversation, uh, Travis is also an image correction specialist, meaning his work is his artistic work is tied to how images are manipulated and quote unquote corrected in the beauty industry as his day job. And this then informs the show, I Am a Portrait. Uh, can you describe the show for me, Adriana? Yeah, as you said before, um, I think it's important to note that his day job directly is tied to his, you know, artistic output. 
And so what you'll see here is a bunch of sort of analog and digital paintings on a variety of different materials like suede and silk and canvas and paper um, on which he'll arrange these kind of blemishes and the discarded detritus of the of the photos he is uh, you know image correcting into these beautiful compositions that feel like very kind of traditional compositions um, in addition to that he has a few hanging pieces of um, these amalgams of you know pimples and blemishes and hairs on beautiful silk that's almost it feels ethereal I think that's the one thought that came in when I saw the installation was that it just feels so ethereal and not of which it was referring to originally which is kind of this dark under undercurrent of the beauty industry yeah the ethereality is is kind of evident in the way that the show is you can almost not even see it right um in this it, it's this this like hyper diaphanous you know right. and, and this 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 sort of veil um that stands between the idea of having a job job a day job and having an artistic practice with right. this with this veil in between and that somehow uh feels like what the what the art ends up being like Right, it feel and a lot of the pieces, um, you know, they're they're stains or they're like a semblance of something else or a reference to something else, but it's not quite there, and it just definitely feels like there's a really interesting conversation happening between the labor of the artist and kind of these source material that he's being readily supplied with, and kind of technology and human labor and work it's just it's a must-see so let's move on to that conversation i have to apologize ahead of time it was uh recorded in what seems to me like extremely early in the morning so i'm kind of all over the place um but <laughs> no. uh, hopefully hopefully there will be some useful insight into the work and into uh art and into the relationship between how we sell our labor value and how we also uh disalienate ourselves from our work Yes, listen in. Travis, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I wanted to start off by asking you about your day job. or And, uh, you know, it involves retouching and sort of refiguring photos for editorials and advertising. Um, I'm so interested in what led you to that work. Uh, I guess I was like an early-ish adopter of digital technology, um, at least like in the 90s when Photoshop was really coming out and you can actually start doing more editing uh, with it. Uh, so I was like playing around with like portraits a lot and doing my own artistic practice, editing images, uh, and I actually just got really good at it. And I thought like, oh, like maybe I can be doing this professionally to subsidize or support my artistic practice. Yeah, so I've been doing photo retouching God, almost 20 years now, I guess. Yeah, I started in the early 2000s. Did you invent the term image correction specialist, or uh, do you have like a union? Or <laughs> I, I don't have a union. I think I invented that word, although someone may have used it before, because a photo retoucher is sort of like a general term, and I was using that as, you know, I'm kind of at a point where I'm like a senior retoucher, so I 
go over a lot of people's work and uh, edit those. So I was thinking like, oh, image correction specialist sounded nice. But it also has a retoucher suggests going over something and sort of, well, retouching it. There's there's a uh, there's a process of repetition and of an iteration through through the work, whereas correction suggests that you go in and fix problems. Yeah, sort of like in, in two ways. Uh, one is like in the industry, people are constantly striving to create a better image. You know, whether you're adding color, creating a composition, doing very minor work, it's all about these sort of like little corrections. Uh, or also, if I'm looking over other people's work, I'm correcting like mistakes like they might have made. So it's like correction in that way. Or I also, if you think of like a in a term of, you know, blemishes, it's something to be not desired and to be corrected. Yeah. Yeah, they're kind of deemed useless. Um, and I'm wondering. I love how you refer to them as detritus and kind mm -hmm. of the discarded pieces of us. How did you first get drawn to collecting these? You know, this information that would be discarded. Yeah, I think it was in the mid to early 2000s, I was just editing a lot of portraits and I just got really interested in all these tiny things I'd have to remove from someone's face, like little hair, some like moles and blemishes, like the things that sort of make us unique from everyone else where in the fashion industry, you're sort of trying to create an idealistic portrait. So all those things are typically removed. So I wondered what would it look like if I just erase the entire photograph, the entire face and only leave the imper imperfections. Uh, in the beginning, they're very sort of like minimal. You almost couldn't see a face. They looked somewhat like you know, like a celestial formation. So there's like that sort of like nice connection from like the body to like outer space. Well, the this was the the big question I had when Dinah explained what your work was like before I'd ever seen it was trying to imagine what this uh, what this lack would be. You know what what these things are that you take out and this this kind of it's. It, you can't really say that you're working within negative space, but you're working in with what's what has been intentionally left behind. And I'm trying to imagine, like, you know, when I'm messing around with Photoshop myself, whatever I take out, I, I can't even imagine what it looks like because it's gone. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think of if you're using, like, the smudge tool or something to remove a blemish, then how how does that blemish still exist? Like, because you've, you've pushed it away, like, do you copy it out first? Or Yeah, the easy answer would be, like, I copy it out in the beginning in a way. Uh, so I sort of, like, circle it or, like, save it. Mm -hmm. uh, and, like, that way, whatever normal process you might use to remove it, it's not the same as the way that I'm doing it to use it for the artistic practice. I see. So, so it's a little bit like when you go to like the, the plastic surgeon or something and they like draw all over your face and they say like, here's where we'll cut and here's where we'll cut that you have this interstitial period where the uncorrected image shows the marks of its copy editing or something like that. And then the excisions happen. And on the one hand you have the stuff for the industry. And on the other hand you have your art. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's sort of like a, a way to explain it where it's like I'm I'm still like working and creating things for my professional career. And then as I'm editing, I sort of have like these little folders or like layers within the image that I can pull from later on. And do you just because they're so the, these blemishes and things are so decontextualized, do you then present them in some way 
related where the blemishes are related to themselves like they are all from one face or from one photo or something like that or do you take oh all of these are a similar color or have a similar i, I do both uh, okay. some are in the original position uh, and sometimes you can actually see a face or other ones i give myself more freedom to create drawings or paintings if you will like moving the little imperfections or color adjustments within photoshop to create a composition and they're very painterly. I mean, all of these pieces encompass like compositions and kind of marks that are feel really traditional. And I'm wondering where does, you know, where does the intersection with traditional painting practices and perhaps a post analog process intersect for you? Yeah, I, I think it could be because I studied painting and drawing at the same time. I was studying photography and when digital photography and editing was becoming more available in the 90s that I sort of combined them all together where I could, you know, work as a painter does, but in Photoshop and like using like the brushes and using swaths of color and taking color adjustments from uh, an actual image and applying that to the work and playing with it. And uh, yeah, and sometimes they look very, almost like watercolors in a way, the way that they're printed on the paper or canvas. The balance of sort of a more ephemeral philosophical themes are tied to the cosmos. Um, and then they're coupled with a grounded study of what it means to be human. It's a really fascinating kind of two areas of study. Um, where did you start off asking these questions and how did they find the, their way into your work? I always sort of joke my work fluctuates between cosmology and cosmetology, you know, like the formation of the universe and like the study of like the form of beauty. And uh, I've always been interested in particle physics and these little like particles that are like floating and they, they make up the planet and like us and everything that the it sort of like came together as like these little like imperfections almost like these little floating particles in space and uh, in 2013 I actually got a residency in Switzerland and I spent uh, six months traveling to the Large Hadron Collider there the particle accelerator because I was also interested in how machines can see things like there are these giant machines the size of buildings underground and they're almost like cameras they can photograph these tiny little particles accelerating and exploding together i was struck by that the the comment about cosmology and cosmetology because they they both do share the same root of cosmos but the the way we think about or the way the greek word has this sense of order and structure that very much what it is what it is about is um the when you talk about the cosmos, you're talking about the universe as having a structure. That's why you can talk about it, because it has some kind of uh, co coherent means by which it's graspable. And then from what I understand, this is just what the Oxford English Dictionary tells me, is that cosmetics, the structure has to do with a sort of aesthetic rule of structuring, mm -hmm. that there has to be a kind of, um, that what cosmetics do is they provide structure to the unruly, uh, the unruliness of nature. So it comes back around to the sort of thing I was pushing on a little bit earlier, this idea of correction, this kind of, uh, this, you know, like you're the punishing father who comes down and just, and just, uh, just inflict like this superego that inflicts order and, and the rule on I didn't plan on getting this Lacanian this, this quickly. But, but, I, don't, I don't think I've been called the punishing father before. But, Although my son might say otherwise. But, uh, but that, well, because it, it's, if, if you're correcting something, then that means that there has to be a better 
corrector version of it has to exist somewhere and that's you know like you said earlier like an ideal portrait like a platonic ideal or something like that and that's um but then i don't you know like your your work again is its structuring is not as legible in that way like in this kind of idealized form because I, when i when i look at it i don't see i don't see platonic ideals that's a good thing i think and uh and so but it, but the what I'm getting at is that this relationship, like I'm, I'm very, very curious about this, uh, the rule, basically. <laughs> the rule. The rule. Well, the, the, there's so many rules, <laughs> uh, and that's the thing because every, everyone is different. Uh, so there, there might be a rule for how to edit an image for a particular person, a celebrity, or uh, just like a fashion model. And within that, you have different industries. You have like e-commerce, you have editorial and fashion and all these things. So depending on an image, at least speaking from a you know photo retoucher or image correction specialist background, you would treat an image differently depending on like what it's gonna be used for. Uh, and it also can be quite subjective uh, depending on like the retoucher or the, the team. So I also think of correction and, you know, fairly minimal terms too because you could say like well an image this image looks a little too yellow so we got to add some blue to it that is a correction in a way yeah uh, however small now that i'm thinking about it even more like the um because i want to talk about the the big piece in the show um actually can you can you describe it uh sure the the largest piece in the show is uh called similar seemingly absurd infinities uh and it is uh, a piece I created in 2009, but I recreated it for shows. Uh, and it is all of the dust that has been removed from 100 NASA photos. And at the time I was, uh, people still remember how transparencies were taken and you have to scan a transparency to digitize it. And often there's dust on the transparency that you have to remove. Uh, to make it like a nice, you know, looking image. So I was having to do this for all these like NASA photos. And it just sort of like struck me that I'm removing dust from NASA photos. I'm like, oh, what would that look like? Removing labor almost, you know? Mm -hmm. Like something you would almost not see, uh, but something that still has to be done. It's like so like minute and tiny. Uh, And yet, you know, 70% of all dust is from like human skin as well. So like there's like that human connection. so I removed all the dust from the 100 photos and overlaid them together. So it was almost like this dust field, or in a way, since the image is almost 95% white and the specks are sort of grayish, it would almost be an inverse of a mm. star field. Mm. We talk about cosmic dust and then we talk about how we're all made of stars. So it's, it's kind of the same right. thing. It's just a bunch of dead skin. Mm-hmm. But the, the other thing that really strikes me there is that the idea of like standard error and a lot of what we now call statistics grew out of scientists assuming that they were making mistakes when they were measuring the position of stars. Because hmm. they're like, we, we can sort of figure out that there are limits to what our instruments can see and that we are making mistakes. So we have to figure out how can we, how can we deduce the true position of a star? Um, and they came up with standard error. They came up with with various distributions and things like that. So that's it's it's yet another way in which this kind of correction happens. That there's that that you end up with rules where they become 
because you're you're talking about like aesthetic rules like maybe a certain kind of performer or like model has certain rules like you always have to take this mole out or something mm-hmm. like that um but also there are rules uh regarding how you measure stuff in space in order to be able to tell where the where it quote unquote actually is True. to account for the measurement error to account for things like dust getting in the way and making things confusing yeah and uh, another connection to like uh like humans and stars as well that i think about my own practice is as like a young kid i would like look up at the stars and you learn that you can actually use some stars or constellations as a reference point to find out where you are in the world and i, I really love that idea and then we we look at stars and see ourselves in them like uh, like Jennifer Lawrence, <laughs> which is a little bit of an in-joke. I sent Adriana a Jennifer Lawrence <laughs> gif earlier today. So. Um, but but that, that there's this ref- reflectiveness um, in the in the work because the, the in the work in the way that you have uh, you know that you're seeing something that you are very familiar with in both a commercial realm and also like in a visco realm or something like that. You see it within an industry term and you also see it within like your own practice of being like, what can I put on my Tinder profile? I don't know about Tinder profile, but... Well, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but there's like an aspect also of labor in your pieces and the conversation perhaps between machine labor and human labor and you know, the latter of which is slowly disappearing in many industries. Um, how do you feel those themes kind of come up in your work? Because it's, it's an arduous process, you know, selecting these pieces of debris to formulate a new image almost. And, you know, also freeing them from this capitalistic train they're going on, you know, and they're going to be discarded and you're kind of giving them a new life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think about that a lot and sort of taking from the commercial and creating something personal. Right. Uh, and uh, the labor aspect is definitely there. Some pieces speak more directly to it. Uh, like I did this one series, which isn't here. It's called the Continuous Work Drawings. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was doing e-commerce work. I was editing like hundreds of images, uh, sometimes a day. Yeah. And you, you really feel like you're just this sort of weird solo labor force that's like just pumping these things out. And it's about the, the performance of like the work. And I was interested in, could I draw and work at the same time? Not mm-hmm. like secretly draw what I'm right. supposed to be working, but can I get paid to work, but also create a drawing in that process? Right. And I found this computer program that would track my cursor as I was editing an image, and it would oh. just create this nice sort of single pixel line drawing. And I wasn't really looking at the drawing as I was creating, it was sort of like in the back window. Uh, so each image would take between three and five minutes. It was very fast paced and each drawing would also be the exact time as that image and how long it took. And then in the end, some of the pieces looked almost figurative. You'd see sort of like a limb, but it was very like jaggedy and pixely or Mm. sometimes it would almost be like this weird constellation or in some ways I think of them as like clouds because people start to see Mm. shapes within them. Or like timekeepers, you know? I Mm -hmm. think a lot about kind of machines that sort of hold the mirror up to us um and a lot of your pieces here remind me of like thermal images or different ways of getting a portrait of someone based on their heat or the Mm -hmm. motions they're giving off um so there's a really interesting play between that kind of the machine and the human and how does one act as kind of like the catalyst for the other and vice versa Mm -hmm. that's true that actually also makes me wonder about the future of image correction special specialists and, and in, the, in the sense that this is a threat to your uh, 
hopefully not your livelihood, but maybe to your artistic practice, because Dinah refers to uh, these blemishes as a, as a sustainable resource for your paintings and sculptures. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I'm trying to imagine this allegedly is the promise of something like machine learning, yes. which is that you end up an enormous warehouse of computers will eventually figure out how to take all the moles away and will be able to give in a certain rule structure like and that computers will be able to do that by themselves like is this is your work dealing with that in some kind of way like because it's just the i'm sorry this is a this is a little bit peculiar but it's it's it just struck me that idea of sustainability within in contrast to automation Mm -hmm. um because a lot of the work that has been here at undercurrent is is also based on salvage and detritus but of stuff that probably isn't going to be going away right but the the clicks and what you make with your hand and the mouse hypothetically could no it could uh, you're, you're true it's something i'm actually very interested in uh, neural networks and generative adversarial networks and i've actually started using them within my artistic practice because you could think about it in the relationship of a Photoshop filter. One of the earlier ones that might connect to machine learning is like the content aware tool. Mm. Exactly. You know, you don't really need to clone out the thing manually yourself. You can actually just use this thing and circle an area and it'll try its best to make it look like a cloud. (laughs) Um, But there's actually very rudimentary tools that aren't being used in the industry, but could very soon where you just tell it to make a cloud and it generates a cloud. And how these things work is uh, GANs, or Generative Adversarial Networks. It's two neural networks, and one is fed a thousand images of a cat. And it's communicating the other one, and it tries to make a photographic image of a cat. And then the other one decides whether it looks like a cat or not, based on its thousands of images. And it, it keeps going back and forth, and it gets smarter and smarter, and finally it can generate a photographic image of a, that looks like a cat but that cat has never existed before. Right. So you could do that for other things like trees, clouds, people. There are actually portraits now that are, you know, web size that majority of people can look at and they would think it's, you know, someone real. Mm -hmm. Wow, Uh, really? Yeah, yeah. So those could be potential tools that get, you know, added on top of these Photoshop filters or things that you do, or certain aspects of the industry might, you know, get, you know, pushed out where it's done faster. So it could be good or it could be bad. It, it depends on, you know, how things are used. But there's still, I think, always going to be the need for like that human eye, mm-hmm. you know, like that element of creativity or idea of a, a style that the photographer wants. Right, because what machines don't have is spontaneity or the, Mm -hmm. the, you know, ability to think and make decisions for themselves. Exactly, because people use the word artificial intelligence really loosely, and sometimes they think like, oh, machine learning is that artificial intelligence. I'm like, well, it's a subset of it, but, you know, these machines aren't doing these things on their own. Like, you're still choosing the images, you're still saying you want to look like this, you're saying, okay, do it again, and, you know, and then it's sort of producing these things. So it's almost like you're, there's still a huge amount of human control within them. Yeah. Uh, so I started playing around with this in my own practice, uh, sort of connecting to the continuous work drawings, like having to be able to make something while I'm working. So I um, was using a neural networker, again, to create images based off of my color balance series. So I, I fed it you know, like a hundred works of mine 
And then I also was trolling the internet for very specific portraits. Mm -hmm. So then it would have to try to create that portrait, but then in the style of my work. Uh, and I call it sort of like this pseudo collaborative process because then I also sort of take that image that the machine produces and I still edit it further. So it's sort of like a, a back and forth. These things are uh, inherently extremely tied together in 2020 mm -hmm. and might be might and will probably only be more so i don't know if photoshop has has machine learning built into it yet but it certainly will soon if it doesn't it most likely it would yeah i'm sure they're very aware of it like i think one of the you know very rudimentary programs you can you know play around with online is called gan paint and it has like a very, you know, like only like 1000 pixel image or it's, or it's 256 and you can just kind of go in there and say like, okay, make a door and it makes a door in a building or like make some grass and you just sort of paint and it makes some grass. And, you know, it's very pixelated at the moment, but in, you know, three, five years, 10 years, uh, it might be high res. Pixelation and quality of image is another really interesting thing to think about. I don't know if you read any of the writings by Hito Sterl. Mm -mm. Well, she writes a lot about, she wrote this um, in defense of the poor image, which basically is kind of championing and defending these kind of re-downloaded and re-processed uh, photos and, you know, torrenting like movies on your laptop and these kind of duplicates of the original or of the referent. Um, and she speaks about these images with kind of empathy in her voice as if mm. they're like orphan children or something. Um, it's just really interesting to think about images online with a sort of you know empathy or humanistic look into them now it's funny you uh talk about that the idea of like empathy and the, these sort of poorly created images uh a lot of the titles for the the color balance series comes from uh discussions within the industry about how to produce a better image and sometimes someone may not have the right language to use or they just sort of like make up something or we're working very quickly and someone will just say something sort of absurd <laughs> you kind of know what they mean but you're like well that's not the correct technical terminology uh like one of these give the, us one of them the, the hanging soap piece which still might be my favorite title is um i'm feeling like the yellow is creeping up in my light ends <laughs> which i'm pretty sure i understood as like okay like so the the highlights are too yellow it's like you could have just said that like minus yellow five points highlights um, uh, I think the pink one here is uh, not very pretty <laughs> or like no cookie cutter. Um, uh, there's one, the little green one's called uh, they all can't be winners. So they're tied to this kind of like objective, you know, yeah. Idea of beauty. Idea of beauty. Yeah. yeah. Or structure. To make, yeah. Structure to, to make a better right. image. The not very pretty reminds me of, um, uh, Homer Simpson's makeup gun. Oh, is that the one where like, it kind of makes you look like a clown or something? Yes, yes. Yeah. Or, or as uh, as Marge says, I, th I think it's Marge says like you have it set to whore. <laughs> <laughs> so it's 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 not very pretty, but it's making use of all of these kinds of like of trying to provide this kind of structure mm -hmm. by applying cosmetics, by applying uh, by a working with the face as some kind of uh in in some kind of aesthetic way but then just failing mm -hmm. and and sort of moving past that that ideal yeah no, that's true i wanted to ask uh, to go back to the the continuous work drawings so you basically treated yourself like an amazon employee and tracked every every movement you made to uh 
to uh, make sure that you are you were uh, you very much like there's a way that you just dis- in describing it you make it sound like it's a kind of gamification of of your own labor a little bit yeah because each drawing the title is like the drawing number and then how many minutes it took to make that drawing and the date of it and the exact time that the drawing was started yeah so, so, so i could theoretically go back and say like oh i worked this many minutes that day which connects back to the stars and kind of refiguring yourself in a landscape and trying to see where you are mm-hmm. in a place which is really interesting like a map of sorts oh. yeah and also but and also again sorry the the punishing father who's making sure that you're doing the work <laughs> and making sure that you you know that, that you you have evidence of of doing this this labor but then <laughs> but the the twist is for me that uh i don't know if, if our listeners are familiar with this concept the the peruque um, which is uh, how Michel de Certeau talks about um, peruque is French for uh, wig. And it's how he talks about how people, if you have ever worked on something at work that isn't work, then then you're, you're doing la peruque. It's this kind of way that we, it's, it's part of de Certeau's idea of within everyday life, you can't really break out of it. But instead of being pessimistic about it, like someone like Lefebvre would be, you find ways to rebel. And so that there's kind of a way in which in which these w- continuous work drawings sound a little bit like that. And in, mm. and in general, your practice sounds a little bit like that. Like, I have to, I have to feed my kid, <laughs> but while I'm on the clock, I'll also generate art and, and something that provides me with, I'll, I'll disalienate myself from at least some of the labor. Yeah, it's definitely in a way of like, double dipping or like using my professional career to like feed my artistic practice or just thinking about life in general as a part of like art and I'm always sort of making things you know it's also I'm also interested in the idea of like editing in in digital um, sort of computerized labor because it's almost like this this hidden labor in a way so it's like this thing you don't see And, and like in connection to like the artist practice is like you, you never see the artist thinking about the work. Like a lot of times I almost feel like I spend more time thinking about a piece or coming up with an idea or figuring it out as I'm making it than I actually do physically making it mm-hmm. yeah. or printing it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we, well, Adriana did the talking. When Adriana talked to Rodney Dixon, he said something about how like finishing a painting is very easy. Like it just takes, you know, you can finish a painting in a minute. Mm-hmm. But that could be a painting that you haven't touched in forever because you've been thinking about it and trying to figure out like what is it missing and then that moment strikes so in, in or Jennifer Slavin Harris the missing piece there's always that kind of challenge of figuring out what a piece needs to be completed or to be at mm. least on its way to being completed mm-hmm. I just had one more question okay um, I wanted to know what advice you have for younger artists who perhaps have interdisciplinary interests as you do I know you're also interested in science and but also this very deep artistic practice. Yeah, I would say for like younger artists today, or especially like ones that live in the city, I feel like there's this even more constant pressure to like have some sort of not necessarily career, but like a way to support your practice. Um, just because you know you can't really, uh, unless you're famous and part of like one percent of artists who can actually live off their artwork, you still need something to pay the bills essentially, uh, and it's good to think about in a way can that be part of your practice or can it 
at least generate a space so you have time to create your work. So I, I definitely recommend artists to think about that as like they're in grad school or like beginning to make work and support themselves. Like I went more of the way where like it is directly connected to like my practice where sometimes people feel, uh, and it sort of depends on like what you're making too. Like obviously who's someone who's making physical paintings can't really do that. Uh, and sometimes they tend to take a job that they don't have to think about at all which is actually really good. Like my photo retouching career, once I'm done, I'm done. I don't have to be like worrying about it when I'm at home or in like the studio. So like there's like that nice sort of clean break. I don't have to be working while I'm doing other things. Yeah, because that was going to be my question is like, are you always on as a result? Because this, the, the way that you, uh, so I'm trying to think of artists and I don't read a lot of artist bios, but I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of artist bios that I've read where that somehow foreground their quote unquote day job. Not you know, many do. Yeah. And you have, you have, you have a bit of a tradition of this, like Frank O'Hara, like it's very important that to understand Frank O'Hara's poetry, it's very important to know that he was, he worked at MoMA and he would go out for lunch every day. Hence lunch poems. And, but like, if you are, if you are a barista, you probably aren't going to, write in your artist bio like blah 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 as a barista and visual artist working in the medium unless you're working in the medium of latte or something like that Mm -hmm. um and so in one way that really struck me because there's a kind of very new economy entrepreneurial type of aspect to that in the sense that in, in this is what i'm getting at in the sense that you're always on um everything is going towards the way that these two things are indelibly related because one provides the source material for the, like the, the, the job provides source material for the art. But then at the same time, like you've been saying, there's, there's that idea of sort of a, a subversive element to it and a, a means by which like it, it just feels really hard, to, hard to square. And uh, maybe you have the answer to how to sort of square this kind of contradiction between entrepreneurialism. Like you, you, your art doesn't stand there as in to say like, oh, and hire me to be a photo retoucher. No, um, I'm sure that your your career is in perfectly fine shape without your clients even knowing that you do this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they are related, mm-hmm. and and there is a way in which you get this kind of feedback loop in which you're always selling your labor value in some way. Yeah. I think it took me like a few years to sort of like really connect them together. Cause I was always interested in like the history of portraiture and like what it meant to like depict someone at a particular time and, you know, space essentially, uh, that, you know, those sort of ideas and my creativity through my artistic practice actually helped me become a better retoucher. So at one point, they just sort of all combined together for me. Um, I mean, I'm not thinking while I'm making art or while I'm at home, I'm not thinking about like, oh, I have to edit this fashion editorial thing, uh, which is nice. Uh, And I'm sort of at a point where I don't feel like I need to learn new skills to get better at it. Um, Yeah, it's funny because also I feel like I'm at a point where when I'm at work, I'm like working the entire time. If, I, if I'm working seven hours, it's almost like a complete seven hours. It's like very intense. Uh, I have to finish uh, projects on a, a deadline. They're for fairly like high-end clients at the moment. And sometimes I'm also left with like pockets of like mental space. 
like we can usually like stream something while we're working. So it's something that's not completely taking your attention. I also often listen to like audiobooks, uh, or sometimes I'm just zoning out as I'm working and thinking about art. So it's nice. I can have that sort of job where I can actually access different areas uh, when I'm interested. Right. Thanks, Terry. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Travis. Thank you for having me. Thank this you very much. This has been great. <laughs> All right. And your opening is on the 10th. Yep. Yeah. Friday the 10th, January. Friday the 10th at 6 p.m. And um, if people want to uh, find out more about you, what should they do? You can go to www.travisleroysouthworth.com or on Instagram. It's at Lee Southie. With a L-E-S-O-U-T-H-Y. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Right, thank you very thank much. You. So, Adriana, yes. what, uh, what struck you most about what Travis was talking about? I think what was most interesting, because I feel like we've talked about this before off camera, just with the undercurrent family, is this idea of artists existing in these two different spheres of having to have a day job, but also having to feed more of a soulful part of themselves with their art feed your kid and feed your soul exactly and i think it's you know travis talks a lot about that in such an interesting way and is so positive about having you know a day job and the ability to kind of also switch off at work and be thinking about his work and it's just really inspirational because i think there's this narrative in which artists should be able to support themselves solely through their output but it's just in this day and age, it's so difficult and might be impossible. Yeah, and that that positivity, that's a really good way of putting it because I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but there's, like, I wouldn't say I was leading him, but I was expecting to reach a point where it's just like, you know, where some kind of, yes, capitalism sucks comes out, and it never really does. It's always just like, well, you know, there, there are these two things, and they, you know, I, I do this, and then I do this. Right. And that, um, and so, like when uh, when I brought up the de Certeau, like that's that's entirely the underlying theory behind that that he gets from the Fabre and other and other idea, other thinkers is the sense that having a job sucks and you don't want to do it and you are always looking for ways to get out of this terrible system and that's just missing and and i'm absolutely startled because i it's very hard to put putting it aside not saying it doesn't exist but sort of just like there are other things mm-hmm. was really striking mm-hmm. but i asked you what struck about what what he said not what struck me no but i ask you what struck you what strikes you <laughs> well not well that that's what strikes me great okay to finish up, as always, you can find out more about Undercurrent at undercurrent70.org, which includes links to Undercurrent's social media profiles and to this podcast's archive. Leave us a review, like, and subscribe to the podcast. On behalf of Undercurrent... And 1984 Products. I'm Adriana. And I'm Wasir. Happy New Year! Happy New Year! Happy New Year! And see you next time. Mariah Carey. Carrie.